Sadly, we know that we have lost Oklahomans to, to this virus, and we know and can anticipate that this will continue to happen. What's going to change the game and keep things moving in the right direction at this point is really individual action. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, um, but I'm just here to tell Oklahomans we are going to get through this. I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier, and this is COVID-19 in Oklahoma, a daily podcast bringing you the latest info and insight into how the coronavirus is impacting our state. Through interviews and conversations, this podcast is about context and clarity during this challenging time. Today is Wednesday, April 15th. On today's episode, The Frontier's Cassie McClung joins me to talk about a court's decision in Governor Stitt's declaration that abortions are not essential medical procedures during the coronavirus pandemic. We also talk about trends we might be seeing when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths in Oklahoma. But first, here's a review of the latest coronavirus numbers. On Tuesday, The State Department of Health reported 115 new cases of COVID-19 in Oklahoma, bringing the total to 2,184. Cumulative hospitalizations reached 488, and nine additional deaths brought the total to 108. Also on Tuesday, leaders of the Oklahoma State Senate and the Oklahoma House of Representatives filed a lawsuit asking the state's Supreme Court to declare the Board of Equalization must meet to officially certify a revenue failure. According to nondoc.com, the lawsuit comes as the latest development in a dispute between the Republican-led legislature and Republican Governor Kevin Stitt over how to handle a revenue failure for the final months of fiscal year 2020. Also making news this week, the Frontier's Clifton Adcock reported that the city of Veneta is facing a lawsuit seeking an injunction and court ruling against the city's recently passed emergency ordinance requiring people to, with some exceptions, stay in their homes and establishes a curfew in an effort to stop the spread of COVID-19. The lawsuit was filed in Craig County District Court by a Veneta attorney and 22 other plaintiffs. All right, hey Cassie, how's it going? It's going good. How are you, Ben? I'm good. I am. Uh, I'm. I'm doing well. I, you know, yesterday I was kind of had my head buried in the sand with a story, a non-COVID story, um, if you can believe it. Sure. Um, some of those stories still exist. The uh, uh, 1995 Oklahoma City bombing anniversary is coming up this weekend, the 25th anniversary. So a pretty big milestone. And, yeah. and normally I think there'd be so much attention on this right now, but because of the pandemic, there's not. But I've spent the last few months working on a story about a, um, a Norman man who was 14 when he lost his father in the bombing. And uh, the guy's name is Jay Curry. And that story will actually be out when you're listening to this podcast. But I, I, I needed to power through and finish it on Monday. And so I was just all focused on that. And for at least for several hours, it's, it, it didn't seem like there was a pandemic going on around us. Oh, well, that's, that's nice. Um, <laughs> I mean, I know it's like not exactly light 
subject matter either. But um, where did you meet this family? You know, I, I had originally wanted to find out how teachers were kind of teaching this subject. And I also wanted to know, I wanted to see if I could find some some teachers who were in the classroom in 95 and kind of how they handled their students. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually started going on the trail of this story back before I even joined the frontier. But through all that, I got connected with Jay, who is a who is a teacher in Norman. And like I said, he he was a a 14-year-old when his father died in the bombing. And uh, so I kind of started talking to him first about just his teaching career, and of which he, it was because of his dad. Several years after his dad passed away, I don't want to give away all the story, but several years after his dad died, he found a journal that his dad kept, or a planner, and and his dad had written that he had this goal of going back to school and becoming a teacher. And and Jay kind of took that as a, I don't know if you would say a sign or kind of planted a seed, but, you know, he decided to go into teaching kind of, off of his uh, his dad's goal. So um, wow. really great guy, great family. He's been really mm-hmm. gracious and letting me spend a lot of time with him at his home, at school, meeting on some other occasions. So um, the, the story, it, it's a beast of a story, but uh, I, I think I one of my goals with it was to was to kind of show that for the for the most of us, the you know the bombing is this anniversary that comes every year. You know, a good chunk of the state and city weren't alive or weren't mm-hmm. living here at, in 1995. But for some, this is still a, a very raw wound, not just every year's anniversary, but but every single day. So that story that story sure. coming out Wednesday, and uh, and yeah, Sounds so that like was kind of what I was focused on. So you know, this is kind of one of those stories where you you feel like you have a responsibility. I mean, I think we always have yeah. a responsibility, but you know, getting a chance to spend with someone who is really gracious with their time, you feel like you really want to yeah. tell it right. Really, it's a privilege. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but now, now back into full COVID mode again today. Welcome and, back. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I've already gone over the numbers in the intro, but mm-hmm. one of the things I did want to ask you about is is the number of deaths that we saw. We talked about modeling over the weekend, mm-hmm. the state's new modeling that they released, and based on the peak of death that they that they were forecasting, we were going to see you know quite a bit of gains and death each day, or at least mm-hmm. averaging like something around 18 deaths a day. And we have not seen that. Now, of course, the modeling didn't mean we were going to see 18 a day. But if the modeling is correct, we, we're still headed towards some pretty hard days of, of, of pretty significant uh, fatality numbers, right? Yeah. So um, like we've been talking about, the state's modeling projects a total of 9,300 confirmed cases in the state. And we're just, I think we're just over 2,100 now and um, a total of 469 deaths by the 1st of May. So, you know, as we've been talking about, we could see less deaths than that. We could see more and we could see the peak move depending on, you know, um, the infection rate and, you know, that data changes all the time. So right now, um, this morning, we, the state surpassed 100 deaths, so uh, the state is at 108 reported uh, fatalities, so that's up from nine the day before. And yeah, so we did talk about there maybe being around 18 deaths per day if we saw an average across the whole month going up into May, but we haven't really seen those high numbers yet, which is good. Yeah. So we we may or may not see those. The peak may have moved, and that's something I plan on following up with this week um, on the state's modeling just because we did get a glimpse of that modeling on Friday, but you know, they're probably periodically updating it. it. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure. 
Um, but you know, since Friday that it might look different even now. So that's something I'm looking at. And I know Tulsa, the city of Tulsa has been talking about their peak quite a bit too. And they're expecting to see their highest infection rate, um, in the coming week or two, and then their highest hospitalization peak in May. So that's just something to think about. Um, each city might differ a little bit and, um, you know, I just wouldn't take the modeling uh, too serious. I mean, take it seriously, but don't expect it to be an exact, um, you know, the actual look at what's going to happen. So I can talk a little bit about the hospitalizations, though, um, which are kind of a good view on, you know, how the infections are changing and how people are getting sick. So there were 488 total cumulative hospitalizations today. And to add some context to that, um, and this data can be spotty depending on how many hospitals reported their numbers that day, but there were 161 total hospitalizations on April 6th, and then there were 186 on April 7th, and then this morning there was reported 194 people being hospitalized. So that's a slight increase, but not, um, I don't think, significant yet. So that's just something, you know, in the coming days and coming weeks, I'm going to keep an eye on and see if there's any trends starting to emerge there. Yeah, and that's a good point that you make about the the numbers coming out. These are, like you said, accumulative. So, uh, you know, that 400 plus number of hospitalizations, that's that's how many total we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, going back to the start of this. And, and uh, most of those numbers that are, are, are people that are no longer in the hospital. Right, exactly. Yeah. So out of this 488 cumulative hospitalizations, um, it looks like most of them have either been discharged. Um, You know, we don't know how many of the people who died, unfortunately, were hospitalized. But we do know as of this morning, hospitals were reporting 194. I'm really interested to see what this week and next week looks like in terms Mm -hmm. of just our our kind of psyche towards this, like our, our state leaders going to start pointing to trends that they feel like are are positive, that we are maybe headed in the right direction. Uh, I know the, the governor of New York over the last couple of days has said that he feels like they maybe have hit their peak. And mm-hmm. even though they're still seeing some pretty extreme numbers, but maybe they're they're on the other side of that peak. And so I wonder how 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 that impacts us, right? And people look at that right. and they say like, hey, in these hot spots, it's getting better. So maybe it's getting better in Oklahoma. Although we were later to the game than a lot of people in terms of when we started to see our cases. So it, it's just yeah. really hard to tell. Yeah, and one of the things um, the Tulsa Health Department and the city of Tulsa have been holding pretty regular uh, media briefings surrounding COVID, but something the mayor's been saying a lot is, you know, Oklahoma cities have kind of had the opportunity to learn from coastal cities because they've been hit sooner and harder than um, we have. So that's kind of given given them the opportunity to learn from what they've been doing and kind of some of the trends there. And of course, you know, pandemics, the outcomes are also geographical. So what they see in New York or San Francisco, you know, won't be what we see in Oklahoma, but there are certain things we can pick up from what's going on in those coastal cities for sure. Well, um, Two kind of important pieces of news that happened on Tuesday when we're when we're talking. One was uh, Republican leaders of the legislature in the Senate and the House have sued the governor mm-hmm. um, over his uh, refusal to call a meeting of the Board of Equalization in order to tap into the state savings account, so to speak, to fill fill the budget shortfall. And I think we're going to get into this a little bit more in tomorrow's episode of, of 
Trey Savage from Nondoc mm-hmm. had joined me last week to kind of talk about the budget. I believe he's going to come back on again tomorrow. So we'll kind of hold off on that. And that news just broke. So I just kind of know what I've read. Uh, speaking of lawsuits, um, uh, Governor Stitt's halting of abortions as non-essential medical procedures. Uh, we had a uh, an appeals court uh, ruling today that you wrote about. Yeah. So we've been seeing a lot of Republican, uh, mostly red states, that there's been a battle on um, abortion access and whether they should be considered essential, like in Texas, in Ohio, um, Alabama, I believe. So this actually happened on Monday evening, um, pretty late into the evening yesterday. So three judges unanimously at the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals issued a decision to uphold a lower court's decision that um, partially and temporarily blocked Governor Stitt's suspension of abortion in the state. So like you said, the governor suspended all elective and non-essential procedures last month in an effort to save resources amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, you know, abortion providers and advocates were pretty quickly to, you know, file suit against that and say that the state, by doing that, was essentially blocking abortion care in the state. So um, on April 6th, a federal judge in Oklahoma City issued an order saying essentially that the state could not enforce the governor's order suspending all abortion in the state except those that were considered an emergency. And the judge had said all medication abortions could resume and that some surgical procedures could continue also. And um, just for a little bit more context on that appeals decision, the judges with that uh, 10th Circuit declined to hear the appeal um, on a technicality. And they basically just said that the federal judge had just granted a temporary restraining order and they weren't going to take up the issue. And uh, this morning, the attorney general sent me a statement saying that the decision was disheartening and that his office is going to be looking at options on how best to proceed. So I'm sure we will be hearing more on that in the coming days or weeks. Yeah. So, But for the time being, abortions are being um, provided in, in Oklahoma. Yeah. So medication abortions are being provided and surgical, um, some surgical abortions are being provided. Um, so in Oklahoma, after, unless in extreme cases, after I think it was 20 weeks, um, you can't get an abortion. So say if a woman was 16 weeks pregnant now and she wanted an abortion, but she had to wait until after Stitt's order expired, which is at the end of this month, then she, you know, under Oklahoma law, she might not be eligible to get that anymore. So the judge is saying if a woman falls into that category where she would lose her legal eligibility that um, she can go ahead and get one. So yeah, so most abortions in the state are going to be allowed to continue for now. Okay, interesting. Yeah, well, I know you'll, you'll continue to, to follow up on that and yes. uh, also taking a look at the, at the modeling the rest of this week. You know, now that I'm back kind of in, in COVID mindset from, from Monday's uh, brief reprieve, I've uh, you know, some of the things that I'm kind of trying to dig into are, are some education-related stories, which is obviously something I, I write a lot about. But uh, mm-hmm. um, quite a bit of, of federal funding is coming to public schools, and so schools are, are in the process of really trying to figure out uh, what that's going to look like, when are they going to receive this funding, how that money can be used. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of district leaders is that they're telling me that in a lot of ways, they feel like this extra funding is going to be what they use as kind of a, a safety net over the next you know, year or two. 
because there's just a lot of unknowns about, you know, next year's fiscal year budget and, and the mm-hmm. budget after that. The legislature and the governor, despite their, you know, their, their lawsuit that was filed on Tuesday, have have somewhat agreed that there's not going to be any cuts to core services for the rest of this fiscal year. But one thing that's left to be seen is what that looks like next year. And, and educators right. who just feel like they, they got to a point where where state funding was increasing after a decade of cuts are kind of worried that we're we're entering that that period again. Yeah. So I guess what kind of services, you know, I for I guess for those people who might not know, what kind of core services could be threatened? Well, I mean, education, uh, public safety, mm-hmm. uh, transportation. I mean, those are the big those are the big ones. And those are the yeah. ones that we've seen in recent years that have had to you know, take some pretty, mm-hmm. you know, I think what some would say would be extreme measures because of budget cuts. I mean, we've seen, you know, state troopers that have put caps on how many miles they can drive. We've seen transportation projects put on hold. Uh, we've seen ed- our schools have to, to cut the number of, of staff and teachers that they have mm-hmm. and reduce programs, especially, you know, art, music, PE, those kind of things. And, and over the last year, it really feels like the state was kind of, you know, writing a, a I don't know if I would called a boom, but, you know, we were riding, you know, a swing up a little bit. Yeah. Funding was stabilizing, was growing. Uh, last year, the State Department of Education requested more funding, and they and they received it from the legislature and the go- governor. So um, just a lot of concern going forward, not just because the, the decline in the economy that we're seeing, mm-hmm. obviously, because of the closure of, of many businesses, but then, like we've talked about, the, the hit that oil is taking in such an important sector in the state. Um, you know the, those two those two punches will will probably have an impact on on schools going forward. Yeah, and you know there might not be a good answer to this or one answer to this, but I'm just curious. You know what cuts to education would look like amid COVID nineteen? You know because we know we don't. I guess we don't know exactly when school will go back into session. So I'm just you know I'm curious how cuts might affect districts differently during this time. Definitely. And I think that's why um, a lot of superintendents have have been given the advice that this uh, federal money that's coming, it's going to be a pretty, pretty big chunk. It, mm-hmm. It'll be, you know, nearly, you know, more than 80 percent of what they receive through Title I funds, which are, are funds that go to school districts for, you know, mostly because of, you know, the poverty that they have in their districts. Districts, though, are going to get a lot of flexibility with this funding. And I, I think, you, what you're like I said, what you're hearing a lot is that this is something that they don't necessarily intend to really spend. At least a lot of the school districts I've talked to, they don't necessarily want to spend it right away. Mm-hmm. They really kind of want to hold on to it and see what they're looking like uh, going forward. In fact, sure. one uh, one official at a, at a statewide education organization that works a lot with with school boards across the state had told me that his advice was really to look at this as a 27 month safety or backstop. You know, so, mm-hmm. so for the rest of this fiscal year, the next fiscal year, and the one after that. Um, you know, the impact of what we're seeing now is going to go on for years. And so it's going to be important for schools to really, uh, you know, be be prudent with their spending, especially with these extra funds. In one way, schools right now are saving a little bit of money when it comes to the fact that they've closed schools, they're not paying for transportation. But then on the flip side, there are new expenses that come with with this time, including Mm -hmm. schools that are trying to give their students, you know, better access to technology, whether that's through the purchase of Chromebooks or internet hotspots. So a lot of trade-offs going on right now when you look at where schools are saving money, but then also having to increase their spending. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So it's not something that districts are going to have to immediately decide what they're going to do with. Um, So 
and you might have already mentioned this, but do districts get to decide what they get to do with this money? Is there some kind of oversight going on? How is that going to work? Well, there is a lot of flexibility with this with these funds, and I've spent some time reading through the the bill that Congress approved and was signed by the president, and at least the the parts that pertain to education. And there will be a lot of flexibility, a lot more than what you would normally see under Title I. So even though Title I is kind of the the system in which the state will disperse these federal funds, they mm-hmm. aren't going to be held to those same limitations. So there will be a lot right. of flexibility and freedom. Another thing that I'm, I'm taking a closer look at is the, the governor's office is getting some education funds that will be that, that he will be able to choose on how mm-hmm. he spends. And that money can be used not just for public schools, but private schools. And so some okay. some questions about how that's going to be used and, and what the governor's plan is for that, uh, for his uh, what's being called like an, an emergency education fund. But yeah, districts will have, uh, you know, a, a lot of freedom and 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 what they what they can do do with these federal funds. You know, we had a staff meeting on Zoom right before this, uh-huh. and um, I I feel I think I'm in a better position than most of my coworkers, including you, because I actually work from home here in Oklahoma City. We don't have an office. So I'm kind of used to being at the house quite a bit. And I've, you know, I've already kind of created a, a, a workspace, so to speak. Um, Not to say that it hasn't been a challenge, but um, maybe, maybe I was already a little bit better prepared for this. So I know it's challenging for you and some others who are used to going into an office every day. Yeah. And I can't complain too much because, you know, I know a lot of our coworkers and I guess, including you have kids around all day, you know, while trying to work. So I haven't had um, you know, that to juggle along with work. But I did finally, yesterday, I finally kind of set myself up a little home office space because I had been working at the kitchen table, um, which was good, but, you know, distracting. So I think that really helped. And I'm just kind of, you know, just getting in the routine and getting used to it. And it, it's not too bad. It's just, it's an adjustment. Yeah. Well, just as you get used to it, hopefully we're going right back to oh, some sense of normalcy and, you, and you'll have to get used to going to the office again every day. Right. I, happily. Happily. <laughs> yeah, again. definitely. So, well, hey, Cassie, good to talk to you. Um, you have a, a good one and, and we'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds good. See you then. That's going to do it for today's episode. You can find complete COVID-19 coverage at readfrontier.org. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Stay safe and healthy. I'll be back with you on Thursday.